You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. On today's show, I have CEO and founder Adam Back, who's a Bitcoin OG and cryptographic expert. He's the inventor of proof of work and also referenced in the Bitcoin white paper. He's joined by fellow Blockstream employee James Macedonio, and we cover a very wide range of topics during this interview. First, we start off talking about Blockstream's efforts to develop their very own ASIC miner and what it takes to take something like that to market and all the challenges that are associated with it. Next, we talk about the abundance of miners that are currently on the market and how infrastructure lag is actually causing this abundance of supply that we're currently seeing. Finally, we talk about the hotly debated potential Bitcoin upgrade called drive chains. I'm personally not a big fan of drive chains, and Adam is a little bit more open to the idea. So this was a good opportunity to present the various arguments around the topic. So with that, here's my interview with the ever-thoughtful Adam Back and James Macedonio. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Uh, excited to have Adam back, back on the show. James, great to have you with Adam. We got a lot to talk about here, guys. <laughs> There's always something happening, right? Adam, you and I had a conversation uh, down in Miami. You described it as building a high-performance machine. And uh, I like that characterization because before we had that conversation, I never really, I guess, thought about... Bitcoin mining rigs as being this engineering marvel. You, you described it almost like a high performance uh, sports car to try to keep pace right. with the competition. So explain some of this to people so they have an, a deep appreciation for the engineering that you guys are working on and then help them understand what it is that you're that you're building with the mining rigs in the market that you're trying to enter. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, Bitcoin mining is a, an economic competition, basically, to you know have low operating costs, uh, which implies low energy costs, but also electrically efficient miners, right? And the technology is improving, as we know. You know, society benefits from Moore's law, which is that CPUs and other kind of integrated circuits get cheaper and faster every year at a fantastical pace for decades straight. And here we are with, you know, more power in a cell phone than the world's supercomputers 30 years ago or something, right? And so it goes. And, it, it, you know, people keep thinking, oh, it's the end, you know, they reached a physical limit, but they just keep going, right? Yeah. So, and it's, it's down to, you know, iterative innovation, right? And so, of course, that applies to mining machines and they're using you know, standard technology, right? It's integrated circuit technology, which has, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of R&D over the last decades. And even an individual fab, like a, a foundry that manufactures ASICs for one of the ASIC companies, of which there are, you know, four or five globally that can manufacture at the cutting edge. You know, that just to plant, to build them costs 10 billion maybe or something like that. And there, there's some, and they're international companies, you know, Samsung and TSMC, are starting to break ground in the US even, and you know they're operating in different countries around the world. So the the types of chips they make on those are you know CPUs, cell phone uh, CPUs, graphics 
GPUs, memories, all this kind of thing, right? And so, but you can make custom hardware and you can see the hint between a CPU, which is, you know, the, it's a general purpose computing device and a GPU, which is a specialized graphics processing device, hence the GPU, right? Graphics processing. And it's been, you know, specialized and hyper optimized for graphics, but it's not so good for general computing, right? It takes which cuts corners. It does the same thing repetitively. And so the Bitcoin ASIC is kind of like that, but taken to the extreme, which is, you know, it does one thing and only one thing extremely efficiently. And it's a kind of SIMD machine, which means it's doing a single instruction on multiple data. So it's doing the same thing lots and lots of times. Whereas a CPU and to some extent GPUs are, you know, following different instructions or different software on different cores. Bitcoin is kind of a hardwired activity. You, you shall calculate this hash on this nonce and do it very fast, right? So that's what's going on in there. But, you know, the whole thing is super optimized in terms of, you know, CPUs are obviously very optimized because, you know, cell phone and laptop manufacturers care about, you know, the battery life and the performance and the efficiency and all this kind of thing. And so, but the Bitcoin ASICs are also extremely optimized, even down to custom units. So uh, customized nodes. So at the, the lowest level of a chip, you know, you, you can sort of compile a circuit, right? So you can describe the digital logic and then there's some software that can lay it out for you and use standard library cells, you know, for like an OR gate or something or an adder or a shifter. So there's sort of building blocks and libraries that you license. And if you really need an extra bit of efficiency, you make custom ones, like you cut corners, you know something specific about the way it's used, it's used. And so there's all these custom optimizations and hand-tuned layout. And so, you know, to get that last bit of efficiency, and that's where things are these days, the, the custom stuff is in there as well. James, anything to add on that particular topic in general? No, I, I think you know, Adam said it pretty well that if you can optimize these chips to do the very specific function, uh, like Bitcoin mining, then you're, you know, you're ahead of the game, right? And, and that's what we're looking to achieve to do, right? We'll, you know, putting in our own little special sauce that, uh, being able to, you know, to do our own, building out our own ASIC miner, you know, we're able to tweak it exactly the way we want in many different ways. One of the things that uh, Sailor mentions this from time to time, and he says that Bitcoin is backed by not just energy, but encrypted energy. And when you look at it, what Adam was just describing in a lot of detail of how custom and specialized it is, I think it's lost on a lot of people that aren't intimately familiar with this space, that that is additional security in Bitcoin because you just can't go to an Amazon server farm of their, you know, all the, this processing that they're doing and say, all right, start mining Bitcoin and think that they're going to be competitive against these rigs that are highly tuned and specialized for guessing <laughs> the, uh, ha uh, the nonce that Adam's talking about. And I think that's a really important thing when we talk about security and what backs actually Bitcoin. Anything, uh, when I'm thinking about this from a manufacturing standpoint, I mean, this is a major overtaking that you guys are doing and to do it, not just to build it once, but then to build it at scale and then get the timing right seems to be very hard or very difficult to do, especially for somebody that's entering the market for the first time. What are some of your thoughts right. on that? Is that uh, correct in thinking or is there, is it maybe easier than what uh, I'm describing? It's spawn. And in fact, most people... 
without prior experience or even with ASIC experience but not specialized to Bitcoin mining who enter the space naively thinking that they can, you know, they can make a, a Bitcoin ASIC and a miner, how hard can it be, actually end up failing due to technical failure because it's extremely high risk. But what we did is we went and uh, brought some specialists in, right? So the Spondulis team, that's a company that's been you know, with a team of experts have been manufacturing Bitcoin ASICs since 2013, 2014, uh, with multiple previous generations. And they've done, you know, everything from the ASIC design, panel supply, control boards, chassis, airflow. And they, they do the, you know, the R&D. Of course, you have to work with specialized companies for different parts of that process, like design process. And finally, the mass manufacturing by everybody effectively is done by large specialized electronics manufacturing companies that, you know, will manufacture Toshiba laptops or whatever you want, basically, right? You contract with them. These are public companies that have like 150,000 employees and can, you know, manufacture to the same tolerances in like three or four different countries in the world. And like ship it to you from, you know, so you can say, well, I want it to be manufactured. You know, could you do it in Mexico? Could you do it in Thailand? Could you do it? And you know, they've got different sites where they can do it and reach the same specifications. And so they take care of the bulk of the sort of generic supply chain and the assembly machines and the kind of mass production manufacturing and QA process. You know, so we're more involved in the earlier stage. And Preston, on, on top of that is the timing you brought up, which is very critical. We look at the, the ASIC market now, it's, um, there's an overabundance of supply, mm-hmm. which are driving the prices and keeping the prices low. So anyone looking to enter the market now for the first time, there are ASICs on the market that are selling below manufacturer cost. Probably wouldn't be a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. And going back to the comment about Microsoft and Google and Amazon, right? Yeah. It's, it's more than just a chip, but right? they're building highly redundant data centers and they're not really specialized for one purpose. So from Bitcoin mining perspective, especially you know, Blockstream has a huge amount of experience. We're out there looking for the cheapest energy we can find and we build modular data centers, which are more efficient than what, uh, what you're finding in some of these larger mm. enterprise uh, cloud providers. So we're, we're going to come out cheaper. Mm. I, I would think that the reliability would be really hard in testing to fully understand what the actual reliability will be long term because the thing's already running at peak power at all times. But to really kind of understand the reliability, you got to get three years into the future of that thing running constantly. So like, how can you emulate or simulate what that reliability might look like three to five years after it's been manufactured and sold when there's no way to kind of really accelerate? Like That's the word I'm looking for, to accelerate the use of the rig. How do you guys think through that from like a testing standpoint? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, one thing that helps is this team has built multiple before Mm. and, you know, learned things along the way. And so I think there's really no substitute to learning by experience with manufacturing Bitcoin ASICs, even for somebody who's made less, you know, high performance, high duty cycle, high power drain uh, ASICs. And I think there are specific areas where it's not, not my area of specialization. So you, you need a staff on the, on the line, really. But, you know, f- from talking with them over the last year or so, uh, I've seen that there are kind of premature aging strategies people will use. So they'll intentionally overheat something per projection period. Mm. And that would sort of simulate aging and things like that. So that there are things you can do, but ultimately, you know, you have to work with tolerances and you know, all these design tools for circuit layouts and things are all working with tolerances and robustness. 
estimates from the ports up to the completed system as well. It seems like everything's going to immersion and liquid cooled. Is that kind of uh, how you see the next five to 10 years playing out for any new rigs that are coming onto the market is that they have some type of liquid cooled or immersion capability? Well, we've, we've designed from the ground up uh, to be able to support both with minimal extra SKUs, like major component parts, right? I think some of the other manufacturers have been sort of aftermarket immersion so they weren't really designed for it, though they, they will work if, you know, you adapt them, right? So I think by designing for, from first principles for that, we can make it the right dimensions to efficiently cool, use immersion, for example, because the amount of the oil, the, the cooling oil is expensive, right? So you want to, you want to have an efficient dimension to be able to pack them in. We also, you know, so we've also looked at the liquid cooling, which is like water blocks, and there are some advantages to that. Some pros and cons, but we we've, we've also been doing airflow with you know some success. So you know even in relatively hot climates in Texas, for example. So we we can support both. Yeah. I'm curious where you think it might come in from, like a, a price per terahash standpoint. Is is that known at this point, or are you still too far in the left of the developmental timeline to know where that might shake out? And I know it's highly dependent on uh, the price yeah. of other rigs and the price of Bitcoin and all that kind of stuff, but is there something that you're targeting? Right. I mean, I mean, I could just give some kind of vague observations of, of the general market because none of the manufacturers are really disclosing what the build cost is, but we're sort of inferring, you know, from how how low they seem willing to sell them for and things like that, right? So, you know, we're seeing things sell for under $15 a terahash. It's all priced in like per terahash pricing. Yeah. And yeah. we think that's below manufacturing. Maybe manufacturing is around 20 or something, 20 to 25. You know, mm-hmm. some, some manufacturers might have a different manufacturing cost or maybe, you know, different uh, generations might cost a little more if they're on a more advanced process node. And one difference for our miner is it has more reusable parts because it's a 14U blade server that fits in standard data center rack. So in a, so it's effectively a two foot cube with 10 blade servers that slide into it. Mm. And those are like field swappable. So it's, you can, you know, potentially upgrade a blade, which is a tenth of the thing's hash rate. And it's a kind of one, pet hash in a two foot cube. So usually people are selling miners, you know, 90, 100, 110 tera hash in a kind of shoebox size, but this is a data center rack size with blades. And so you can fit three of those in a full size data center rack. Is that part of the strategy maybe moving forward as far as making the blades interoperable for upgrades in the future? Or would you get a whole new box? Yeah. Or, yes. No, oh, no wow. that's part of, the, part of the thought. It's less e-waste, less cost. We have a shared control board across 10 blades, whereas mm. today people have a separate control board for each shoebox, and a shoebox is roughly equal to a blade. And then we can also, you know, re- upgrade blades with, you know, a 1.5 versions, right? So like in between versions, like extra optimizations on the current generation or new generation, even in the same blade and reuse, you know, the power supply and the control plane. So this is a dangerous question and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. When can the public market start getting their hands on these things? Uh, it's into next year. So, you know, we've uh, taken the time to focus on more optimizations because as James indicated, the ASIC market is depressed right now. Mm-hmm. So normally, well, let's say in 2021, no mining machine manufacturer 
had inventory because mm-hmm. nobody's well enough capitalized to do that. And so what they do is they ask the customer to prepay. And even to manufacture the ASIC itself, the foundry manufacturing process takes like four or five months, right? So you are looking at at least six months before you get your first machine. In 2021, the market got so like overheated that people were fought, you know, tripping over each other to buy miners. They pushed the price up. They're fighting over the same supply chain and there was supply chain limitations too, right? So it went from, you know, six months and you might get the first batch to, you know, nine months, 12 months and your big order will get delivered in 12 parts over the next 12 months after that. So, you know, you, you start making a payment plan and you might not get the final miner until two years later. Mm. And so that, you know, we're still seeing, seeing the tail end of that. You know, people were really piling in buying miners in the early first half of 2021. And, you know, those are still in box on pallet or the tail end possibly still arriving. But it does mean that at the moment there is inventory, which is not typical. And so you could actually pay money and get machines within the space of a week, right? Normally you'd be looking at six months. Wow. So, yeah. That's changed a lot since what, a year ago, two years ago? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. It's, it's down to the cycles. So I would say, you know, most of the people with those machines would really like to put them online, but there's a shortage of hosting capacity. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. places with, you know, transformed up power at 250 volts, cooling, racks, Ethernet, et cetera, right? It, it has an infrastructure cost to build that kind of thing. And that's something that we've, you know, built quite a bit of, and you can see the hash rate has come up this year, mm-hmm. you know, about, mm-hmm. uh, what is it, maybe 50% up from the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. And so clearly, you know, quite a bit of infrastructure has been built, but not enough. And so there is, you know, until the infrastructure capacity to plug them in catches up, um, there's a surplus. And so, you know, people are not going to, so it's a kind of biased market. So they're, they're going to negotiate a lower price. And we think that once that inventory is absorbed, which, it, you know, it will be sooner or later, then, you know, the prices will start to normalize because it depends on the market price of Bitcoin and the profitability of mining and so on. But, you know, the profitability of mining has also improved. I mean, the revenue uh, per terahash has gone up because the price has increased faster than the hash rate. And because it's a, you know, the mining activity is dominated by the energy costs and the operating costs, if your revenue goes up 20, 30%, your profitability probably goes up a lot more because a big part of that was electrical cost, right? So you might be like a double or triple your profitability and, you know, people won't persist in an unprofitable zone. If they can't make money on electrical terms on like very old generation equipment or because they have high cost of power or high finance charges, they will stop. And so, you know, you you know that everybody is kind of plus or minus making a profit. It's just there's a lot of sunk cost activity going on because of this kind of mm-hmm. glut in supply until that's used up. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. 
You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. I know you threw uh, the the number $15 per terahash, but I think that it's a really important consideration for people that hear a number like that. A lot of the times, the rigs that have been employed for call it three years are running at a price that's $15 per terahash and you're going to run out on the reliability in a year or two and you might pay up a higher, you might pay a higher price for something that's maybe mining at $20 per terahash. And that is is built into the fact that you still have the entire life of that miner to employ. So the, yeah. the numbers on this stuff, it is very complex. There's a lot of moving parts. Uh, I couldn't even imagine trying to manufacture these at scale and get it out the door like what an undertaker. But you know what? If you're in finance and you're an engineer, you're a pig in mud, right, Adam? Like you couldn't get oh, yeah. more pig in mud than this. Yeah, it's definitely a fascinating area. I mean, you've seen other, like in previous, you know, because we've all kind of sat through and watched one or two market cycles, you see that in those bull market periods, the profitability of mining gets so ridiculously high that people will buy anything that mines and they'll buy, you know, they'll turn old miners back on. And there was even a period where uh, one of the major manufacturers couldn't get enough foundry capacity at, at the cutting edge process node at the time. So they went you know, to their other fab and said, well, could you make the previous generation? Because people will buy those two right now, you know, so people stop caring that much about efficiency. Mm-hmm. They just want to get them online when there's a, you know, a bull run and the profitability is very high. So, yeah, I mean, that feeds into the basic fund, but that that's the sort of dynamic. So it's, it's basically swinging across market cycles between a shortage of ASICs and then a shortage of hosting power in, a, in it when people have overshot. I just get really excited when I think through how difficult a lot of this is in order to stand up the production and the deployment and the infrastructure once the rigs arrive and making sure you have the right transformers and like all of this stuff for me is protecting Bitcoin. If there is a nation state that's going to try to attack this, good luck. 
like bring all of this online and securing enough hash rate to have any type of uh, everyone talks about the 51% attack as being the attack vector on Bitcoin. It's like you really don't understand how complex the mining process is if you think that that's something that's easily done. Adam and James, you weren't here on the last conversation that Adam and I had with the Blockstream mining note, which this was probably like in the 2021 timeframe, I would guess we had this conversation. Right. But I understand that uh, Blockstream is doing a basic. You guys are always so good with your naming conventions. Uh, <laughs> the basic, which stands for Blockstream ASIC note. And you guys are listing this over in the in the EU. This is uh, a bond or a, a note because it's short duration. Explain why you covered this when we talked about it years ago, but for people that maybe didn't hear that conversation and James or Adam, take it away. Why would a person be interested in owning this note as opposed to Bitcoin? Give them that value prop from your point of view of like what that does for the investor and then really kind of get into what this is and what you guys are trying to do with it. Yeah, I mean, the, the note that we launched in 2021, July, was uh, a mining note. So that was, you know, plugging miners in into the hosting facilities. And James is head of our kind of uh, enterprise sales and customer relationship management so globally. So, you know, it looks like a big enterprise customer to us. But what the user has is a financial instrument that is a Luxembourg security and runs for that that one's a three-year note, so kind of fixed term note. And it just mines Bitcoin. And then at the end of the term, the note holders get, you know, minus like filing fees and administrative fees. They get the Bitcoin mined to that point. And so we are I think about 26 months in. So there's like 10 months left to go. And it's mined. Uh, I think it's about 6.8 Bitcoin per note. And there were eight tranches sold. And seven of those tranches were sold for less than 6.8. So, you know, and, and it turned out we were anticipating that that note would be actually bought by people with dollars looking to build a Bitcoin position. But it turned out that Bitcoin has bought most of it using Bitcoin itself because we could see the payment method, right? And so even though they did that, it appears they did well. So like everybody except Tranche who bought it using Bitcoin is already in profit and there's another 10 months to go, right? So they'll be fine. Now, the, the basic note is a different animals, a different strategy. It's not doing mining. It's um, buying Bitcoin ASICs, the ex buying up excess inventory and holding onto it until the market gets into a different mode and then selling it back to the market, still new and unused in box because there's really a, a, a different market for used miners versus new miners, kind of like used cars, but even worse, like used cell phones or something, right? Which people generally are not too keen to buy because, you know, maybe they dropped it. Maybe the battery isn't so good anymore. In the case of miners, you have to worry, like, did they adequately cool it? Did they use enough filtration? You know, have they damaged it basically, right? You don't, you don't know how much wear and tear there is on it. And so particularly at these, at this point in the market where ASIC's fairly cheap, it doesn't make a lot of sense to most people to buy used miners. So, cause, cause one of the questions we get, with with the basic note is, well, why don't you mine the miners and then sell them afterwards, right? Mine them in the meantime to make a profit. So there's two problems with that. One is, as we just said, there's a shortage of power. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we've sold out. So where are we going to plug them in? Obviously, if there was power available, the people selling them to us at a cheap price wouldn't be selling them to us at a cheap price. They'd be mm -hmm. hosting them. So mm -hmm. we can't, right? That's one answer. And the other answer is, 
if we did it anyway, so if Blobstream like earmarked some like some new new infrastructure for it, we'd have to charge the, the go market rate, which is not that cheap because of the shortage, right? And we would convert a new a new miner into a used miner, you know, for maybe six months or nine months, and lose most of the upside in the miner because then we'll be selling used miners, right? And people will be asking a lot of questions about, well, how did you use it, and you know, how do we know? Can you give us a warranty? Etc. Right, I want a discount price. So we think that if there are people that want, you know, the economic benefit of mining, what they could do is buy the basic note for the ASIC opportunity strategy, and then separately buy some BMN or a hash rate contract to have a you know partial exposure to hosting, and that that makes more sense then because your miners are still new, and you you know by by buying a a hash rate contract, you're kind of engaging in a similar activity anyway, right? And then you can see how that would work out. And that might, you know, that might work out okay too, right? But we kept the basic note at, let's keep the miners new in box. Thank you. Impressive. If we were, you know, if we had the capacity at Blockstream, which, you know, work in additional capacity, you know, we have proprietary modular mining units, right? With uh, much better filtration than most containers. And also we have proprietary cooling system as well. So, you know, we would probably feel more comfortable if we were to make a choice and to, to mine, but we don't have the capacity. So that would, that would create a dependency on other hosting providers. Mm-hmm. And I, I can tell you some of the miners that we received from other providers, it you know, looked like they went through, yeah, they went, yeah, went through uh, the desert a few times and back. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's risky to, to throw them up online. We do see that, you know, we do see that could benefit, but uh, we think it's more beneficial just keep them brand new and sell them, sell them that way. Yeah. All right. So I understand you guys have a chart that you want to display, kind of making this graphically uh, visual for people that are looking at the YouTube video. So, James, are you the one with the chart? There we go. Yes. Yes. I'll, I'll bring that chart up right now and then Anna okay. can speak about it. Okay. There right. You go. So, now the basic note can be bought using dollars or Bitcoin. And so the question is, you know, looking at historical information, how would it have performed if this kind of strategy would have been executed in the past? Mm-hmm. And so you can see that now this is in dollar terms, right? So you've got the, uh, I guess, yeah, the yellow line is the Bitcoin price. So there was the, you know, 65,000 and the 69,000 in like early and late 2021. Mm-hmm. And then the orange line is the sort of middle efficiency miners, let's call them. So mm-hmm. the miners that were the best in the market back in 2020, 2021, mm-hmm. which were in a sort of efficiency band, 25 to 38 joules terahash. And you can see that, interestingly, the price of ASICs went from $20 a terahash-ish in early 2020, let's say, so during this period. Mm-hmm. And went all the way up to 120, and so you can see that the the price is like had a bigger swing than the Bitcoin price. Is like mm-hmm. basically the point, right? So, you know, if you were in my, and, and actually Blockstream did this, you know, we bought some uh, minor inventory back in this period, early 2021 and late late 2020. Not to speculate on minor prices, but it happened to work out that rate. Right? The reason we bought them is we wanted to provide bare instant gratification to enterprise clients because what we found is they didn't understand the pre-ordering and so they'd come and they say yeah i want to do you know our fund wants to do five megawatts of mining and we Mm -hmm. say great you know we'll negotiate your price you'll wire money to this company in china 
And between six and 12 months, you'll have the miners coming in in batches. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what do you mean? I can't, I can't turn it on today. I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way. Right. And so then they kind of be flummoxed and like mm-hmm. maybe change their mind or do something with faster action. Right. And so we figured, well, let's, let's buy some of this pipeline. So that when they come and they decide they, you know, they've made their investment decision, we can slot them in and we can say, well, you know, this month's is sold out, but we have another batch coming in. So we can put you in between, you know, next month and a month after that'll be enough to get you online. And so we bought all this inventory and we did end up sending, selling some of it to enterprise customers. We also sold some into the market at different prices. So we found out firsthand that you can make a lot of money just buying miners and not even powering them up and selling them, right? Before, mm-hmm. and you, you may not even take delivery of them, right? You just tell the manufacturer, I'll oh, ship it to this guy. Mm-hmm. And then the next time you've sold them, right? So, uh, that, that is a kind of history of it. And then the other observation is that even if you look at the, the price of miners priced in Bitcoin, there's more, you could still make it upside in Bitcoin terms, you know, because the general wisdom is like almost nothing outperforms Bitcoin. And yeah. that has generally been the case, right? You know, yeah. it's, Best performing asset class. It's gone up two times on average, although fairly wild swings in between for the last decade and basically nothing else has. Now here the point is during, you know, economic cycle, actually there's a two times upside in this roughly where if you had bought ASICs using Bitcoin at the low of the market and sold them and kept the proceeds in Bitcoin at the top of the market while the ASICs overswung, you would actually have as much as a two times return in Bitcoin itself. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, in hindsight with perfect timing and stuff. So that's like very hard to reproduce, but you can see an effect is there. So now let's scroll forward to 2023 where we are now. You see the Bitcoin prices appreciate, you know, 60, 70, 80% year to date in 2023. Sorry, so the Bitcoin price itself is up quite a bit. Mining profitability has improved. But the miners have continued to fall because of this oversupply. So you can see that, you know, buying miners in Bitcoin terms is extremely cheap, right? Mm-hmm. And the red one is a newer generation that, you know, only came on the market mid 2022. That's why it doesn't go back further, right? So, and even those are quite cheap too, right? Sub 20. So, you know, there's a bit of a judgment call about the allocation to buy, you know, whether we spend that bit more to buy the sub 25 jewel miners, which, you know, we'll have, they're all new, but they will have a longer economically useful life, right? Because they'll be more efficient and they might be easier to sell in a wider range of market conditions. So, you know, but then again, the orange, the mid-range ones are quite cheap. So even if you sold them at discount, you could potentially make a healthy profit on those too. So then basically the idea is we'll just hold that until the inventory gets used up. Once the inventory is used up, they'll be, we'll be back to the delay where people are placing pre-orders and waiting for manufacturers to deliver them. And at that point, we'll be sitting on you know a bonded warehouse full of new inbox Bitcoin ASICs and looking to hear what people are willing to pay for them. Absent inventory to get online straight away, right? I'm impressed with the numbers. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here on the Blockstream mining note, you said 6.8, the average price. You know, I know you did different tranches, but around six Bitcoin to buy that. And it seems like people will get another three Bitcoin between now and the end of the the term of the note for a, a three Bitcoin gain for somebody that would have taken six Bitcoin and, and invested it into the note. So is that the correct math for people that are looking back at that offering? Uh, I can give you the actual numbers. So tranche seven, 4.8 Bitcoin, 
sorry, tranche one, 4.8 Bitcoin, tranche two, seven Bitcoin, tranche three, 5.95, tranche four, 5.0. It's just because the Bitcoin price is pretty around, close. Right? Yeah. actually priced in euros. Like, and there's 4.9 tranche five, 5.3 tranche six, 5.8 tranche seven, and then tranche eight. I guess the Bitcoin price was down a bit and it was 8.13. Mm. But you can see that, you know, it, it's mines. You said 10 months left and you had 6.8 Bitcoin mined. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so I'll give you some more data. So 6.85 mines today, another 10 months to go. And because of the anticipation of the, you know, Bitcoins to be mined during the next 10 months, it, it's a security token as well as a Luxembourg securitization vehicle. And so you can trade it. And so there are, there are market clearing prices, which are around like 7.3, 7.4. So you can see that all of those tranches, except for tranche eight, are well in money in Bitcoin terms with what the clearing price is. All except two and eight are in money just in terms of the Bitcoin it's mined, right? Oh, and it, and it should sell for more than that. And I would expect just based on like loose number crunching about the rate typically increase that we'd be around 7.4 Bitcoin by end of year and maybe 8 to 8.25 by end of term, like middle of next summer, yeah, summer 2024. It sounds so, phenomenal. It sounds phenomenal. It worked out. I mean, there are risks, of course, but it worked out and it actually got yeah. a bit of a, you know, a turbocharge from the China Bitcoin man because it took a bunch of hash oh. rate offline for six months. Oh. And that was all gravy for people who were mining. Mm. Very important points. But yes, and I'm glad that you said that there are risks involved when you're doing this. This isn't like you're, you know, locking it into a channel that you're still controlling the keys and things like that. People need to understand that, like any investment, right? right? Okay. So I want to take the conversation in a much more technical direction. First, I want to talk about splicing. Because that's a little bit different than the other conversation. I think Adam knows where I'm probably going to go with this conversation. But let's talk about splicing real fast. Explain what this is, because I was up at the Bitcoin Nashville uh, meetup that they had, and everybody was, all the engineers were buzzing about splicing and why this was important for layer two. Yeah. I mean, so you're talking about the lightning technology evolution, right? So people have been talking about channel splicing for a long time. So it's finally here. Uh, so that, hence the technical buzz. And what it does is, Normally, you open a lightning. The evolution of a lightning channel is you open it, you use it, eventually it gets closed down because, you know, one party's had enough or they need the money back or the other party went away or something like that, right? Or it got too imbalanced and they can't figure out how to rebalance it. And, and what people do when they get too imbalanced is they like close it and open another one. And so, yeah. What splicing does is it allows you to add additional capacity into an existing channel, sort of send some Bitcoin to the channel, and it can actually be under fairly continuous operation while you're adding more capacity to it. So it's smart enough to handle, you know, the capacity is like almost depleted, you're still transacting, a splice transaction comes in, channel capacity goes up, and then you switch over to, you know, suddenly the capacity goes up and you can send more or receive more. And, you know, then there are other ways to get to sort of rebalance the capacity already in a channel, which is not splicing, uh, like submarine swaps. And so a relatively new and novel uh, development there was Bolts HQ, which they do submarine swaps between Bitcoin UTXOs and a lightning channel. So they would sort of send you some liquidity and accept your UTXO, or you can send them some sats and they will send you a UTXO. But in the uh, fee run-up that was caused by 
you know, the temporary trend of ordinals and inscriptors that caused the problem. And so what they did to work around it is they implemented a liquid Bitcoin to lightning submarine swap. So it's, it's trustless, it's atomic, but it's cheaper and faster. And so, you know, now that it's in place, apparently a fair proportion of their use remains uh, liquid Bitcoin swaps. Interesting. So there are now like, you know, three or four ways to get capacity. One is to close the old channel, open a new one, which is the old one, old way. Or sometimes people just open multiple channels. So they have like multiple channels between the same peers, which is kind of a bit, a bit odd, but that was what people were doing. Now we have splicing and then you have these kind of submarine swaps between main chain, which is less efficient than splicing. So I think splicing would re- replace that one. And then the submarine swap with liquid is interesting because that doesn't actually use any main chain space. And it's cheaper and faster than doing it on a main chain, even than a than a splice, right? It doesn't involve any main chain activity. And you're, you know, basically paying somebody with liquid Bitcoin to push some sats back your way to rebalance your channel. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one and actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So I'm glad you mentioned this. So Liquid was, for all intents and purposes, not being highly used. Uh, All this ordinal stuff and the wizards leading up to the Miami conference were spamming the layer one with JPEGs and NFTs and all this stuff. And the fees were blowing out. And all of a sudden, everybody started using Liquid. Not everybody, but I mean, there was a, a lot of people starting to use Liquid that weren't using it before because the fees were so high on layer one. This leads me to what I would say is one of the hottest topics in Bitcoin is this discussion around can Bitcoin actually scale without pushing a centralization on layer two? And this is where I really want to go because there's so much conversation right now around this idea of drive chains and offering this alternate way to do to basically take your bitcoin and do a peg into these chains that are the side chains off of uh, bitcoin and this is bip 300 there's a, a gentleman named paul who's out there really promoting this hard i think that there's a lot of interest from the mining community to do this because it will allow them to have higher fees because they would be the ones setting up federations allowing or basically employing these side chains. But I think a lot of users and people that are not miners are pretty against this, me being one of them. And just open kimono, the reason why I'm you know, kind of anti-drive change is I really don't really need any of this capability of any of these other blockchains or side chains capabilities like anonymity or whatever. I just need Bitcoin to continue to be a store of value on layer one. I don't need it to immediately settle. I just need it to preserve my buying power and to actually peg global fiat currencies that are run amok and destroying the world and creating clown world. That's all I need it to do, right? Right. So I'm much more in this ossification camp. I know sailors in the ossification camp, but engineers, and I got my my undergrad in engineering. I get it. They want to build things and they want to do swoopty things. What is your opinion, Adam and James, with respect to drive chains? Can we scale? Is it important that we scale? Like talk about it in a very broad sense. Like what's actually important here? And then give us some of your opinions on drive chains and scaling. Well, yeah, I mean, the fact is blockchains don't scale well. You know, that was the underlying cause of the so-called blockchain wars back in 2015, whenever the uh, series of events was. And I think the outcome of that was kind of market, was a market solution, which is the market preferred what you're saying, right? Which is they wanted censorship resistant, highly secure anti-centralized Bitcoin as a store of value and to be able to transact that when they needed to move, you know, value around, right? And the challenge was, you know, to to scale that in a simplistic way, 
would erode that value, right? You know, if the blocks were enormous, it would be hard to validate. It would tend to get pushed more into data centers and it would, there's a fair chance it would become less decentralized and less censorship resistant. So the market was saying, well, we, the buyers of Bitcoin, like it the way it is. And, you know, so all the forks lost in the market and that, that's where we are, right? But in the meantime, I think the, what you've seen is that the market is like sort of the vendors, like the exchanges, the wallet providers are not that proactive at planning ahead for fee market increases. And so what they will tend to do is wait until something breaks and then they'll look around for some workaround, right? And then they'll go back to their business once they've solved the immediate problem. And, you know, you saw that, you know, eventually people started deploying lightning. Because fees were in a period where previous period where fees were high. And that's good because, you know, for a lot of uses, you don't really need it to be on the main chain because it's a low assurance transaction and it's a lower value transaction. I mean, of course, ultimately, you know, because we're enthusiastic, like, you know, each of us who are Bitcoin investors and holders are enthusiastic about the properties of Bitcoin. We'd like as many people who are, as are interested to, you know, benefit from those same properties to be able to do it. And there isn't enough space on the chain for that to be the case today. So. You know, the lack of a technical capacity won't stop an economic activity. So they'll end up using custodians or, you know, storing things in lightning and evidently storing things in liquid. We've seen, you know, a number of other organic uses like people doing dollar cost averaging, buying in liquids and then, you know, like daily or weekly. And then when they get to the threshold, they'll move it to the main chain. So it's a sort of way of, you know, storing intermediate or active trading on liquid. And moving to Bitcoin for cold storage, which is, you know, of course, the main chain is the best cold storage technology. And so the drive chain is, you know, I guess you could say it's kind of like a, a more decentralized liquid, right? So they just want to see, and, and some Bitcoin layer two things aren't really feasible without additional opcodes in like for the programmability of the anchor. And so that, I mean, that's why liquid is better rated, right? Because that's sort of close to the limit of what you can build without new opcodes. Is it, Adam, and just so I can wrap my head around this. Yeah. Okay. So you already have liquid, right? It's a block stream federation that you have set up. If people want a Monero like capability, as far as nobody knowing what transactions happening, they can peg into liquid. They can have a liquid BTC. They can move that around in a very secure way in which nobody would know what the what the transactions are and then peg back out. The the argument that I keep hearing with drive chains is well now you can do Monero on with Bitcoin. You can pop it into this side chain, you can go do these things, nobody will know who you're sending the money to or what happened, and then you can depeg it back into Bitcoin if, if you want. So that's right. that's their rationale. That's pretty much the only reasonable rationale that I've heard use case outside of Bitcoin is the Monero argument, right? But my um, well, they have another one as well, which is, you know, let's say as a back of the envelope that the main chain can handle a hundred million users and there's demand from a billion users. And, you know, the best technology for, you know, saving and bear resistant money, censorship resistant money, is a UTXO. And so to get to a billion people with UTXOs, there's not enough UTXOs. And so, you know, you could have a drive chain. I mean, you could do some of it on liquid. That's one solution, but it's not as censorship resistant because it's a federation operated by, you know, dozens of exchanges and what have you, right? So ultimately there's, there's more censorship resistant risk, especially for the long term, right? Liquid is more about active trading and then people take it out and cold store it. And so their idea is, well, 
you could have a mined drive chain, which is, let's say, 10 times bigger than the main chain. So it's not as decentralized, but it's still sensor resistant because it's mined. And that would give, you know, instead of the fullback being custodians, or I mean, there are, there are other things too, right? Like other federations like Fedimint, right? But you know, if I keep it to the UTXO model, then at least they could get a UTXO, even if, you know, the, the people that can't afford to get onto the main chain, because it will come down to a cost rate, would get a kind of light UTXO on a drive chain. So I think that's their idea. And and of course, it's, you know, it's it's a modularity layer, so people can implement experimental features in it, but they don't have to. They could just make it, you know, a Bitcoin copy that's got bigger blocks, basically. So, Adam, are you concerned about the incentives getting warped for miners because now they're focusing on these federated side chains that they're managing from an energy consumption standpoint, a time consumption standpoint versus just mining blocks on layer one. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you know, I think people had the hypothetical that, you know, with merge mining, if a side chain, you know, because the original side chain paper by Blockstream had the same kind of, you know, merge mining activity. And then we had, you know, an, an appendix with the federated alternative, like what you can build without opcodes, right? And so, you know, the, I think in the original paper, we say that like, well, you know, a potential concern could be that a lot of economic value piles up in the, in the side chain and then miners are, and something goes wrong there and then they're incentivized to reorganize that. So I think, you know, one thing that can be done to, avoid an incentive clash is for the, you know, for the miners to be able to reorganize or fix the sidechain without reorganizing the main chain. Like what you don't want is some economic driver like pushing to undo Bitcoin finality because of something that's happening over on the side that you don't care about personally, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't want that. But if it can be you know, if it's not in lockstep so that, you know, they can be undoing a mistake over there while continuing to mine the main chain forwards, maybe that's not as dangerous. Another idea that's popped up is ARC. This is uh, coin pools. Explain what this is and then your opinions on the feasibility of ARC. Yeah, I, d- I don't really have a clear picture on how that works, actually. It seems it's, very it's complex. Some- so, yeah, like you have service providers that are basically consolidating UTXO sets. They're issuing virtual UTXO sets to the participants because there's such a high amount of liquidity that's required in order to run these service providers. There's like a duration that you have to uh, renew every 30 days. To me, it sounds very complex. It seems somewhat centralizing, but I'm curious. No opinion. That's the smart way to answer that question. I don't know enough to know. I mean, he seems enthusiastic and to claim that it should be quite scalable. And that, as you said, you have to you know, resell them on the chain periodically. So yeah. They don't live very long. So I don't know. I guess, I guess that means not good for cold storage, perhaps, but maybe, maybe a kind of lightning alternative. If I, I don't fully understand how it works. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I think that is the, what they're going after is a lightning alternative. But yeah. We'll see. I, and I, from what I understand, it requires hard, a hard fork on layer one in order for some of this to happen. Any other uh, comments with respect to covenants, APOs, OpCat? You know, you in the chat that we were having on Twitter, you uh, had mentioned that some of the OpCat from like 2010 had been turned off, is was originally in the original code base, had been turned off, and that, and this is something I was not aware of until you said this the other day, 
that that scripting pre-existed and it was turned off for safety security reasons just to simplify the code and make sure that we get store value right early to a 2010 timeframe. But now you think maybe it might be a time where some of that can be turned back on. Would, would that be turned back on with a soft fork in order to enable a lot of the scripting and, and smart contracting that, that we're talking about earlier? Yeah. I mean, I think the problem with those opcodes is they turn out to have security bugs and the simplest fix was to disable them. So that's what, that's what was done. But, you know, you can, you know, whether they had like an actual bug or, you know, denial of service risk, but you can, you know, you can have, you can use those things in a safer, constrained way. And like, We've had a few of them in Liquid for a few years now, like Opcat and CheckSig from Stack and a second version of CheckSig from Stack with, you know, about 30 helper functions to help with serialization covenant, serializing covenant hashes. So with yeah, no I mean, issues, think- with no issues or concerns, or is, has there been anything that you've, that you have implemented that you've kind of. I guess I'm asking this question just as like a test bed, right? So you've done it on Liquid. Right. My understanding is that some of this stuff was actually re-employed on Bitcoin Cash whenever they did their hard fork. Has there been anything that we've learned since that hard fork with Bitcoin Cash with respect to op uh, codes that are opcap that is something that a learning point for maybe future employment into the base code? I don't know much about what, if anything, happened on and uh, a Bitcoin cash fork. Uh, I do, I do know that they copied some of the opcodes, which is kind of interesting. And there, you know, people have implemented some interesting things using it. Like, you know, because it's liquid, there are other assets in there like stable coins. So you could implement like a signed, a half signed limit order. And with the, uh, cat and check sig from stack covenant, you can implement a partial match limit order and. So, and, and like other things, right? So people have implemented some interesting things using them, not, uh, you know, in, in a kind of experimental way, right? That it's a kind of specialized area. There are not that many people that have the expertise to implement using the Bitcoin scripts or, or like liquid script extensions to it. But still it, it shows, you know, that you can do interesting things with it. People have, have tried it and seen that it works. And we added those opcodes to sort of refine it based on, you know, the experience of running it without those helper functions, it was more cumbersome, right? And yes, so at this point, there are like, I don't know, probably half a dozen variants of how you could get to covenants. I think covenants are probably desirable to get a little little bit more expressiveness. So I, th- I think the thing is, you know, the, the capability to do covenants was probably there or almost there in early Bitcoin before those sort of buggy opcodes were disabled for safety reasons. And if Bitcoin script is made expressive in a number of different directions, there'll be a line that crosses where, oh, now you can implement covenants. And so it's not, you know, it's not like we need a specific covenant opcode, but like, oh, APO, maybe that allows you to implement a covenant or CAT, maybe that allows you to implement a covenant. So, you know, it's just on the cusp of expressibility. And there are benefits, you know, that you can implement vaults, for example, which I think is quite useful for cold storage. So things which, you know, provide a benefit to, long-term secure storage are pretty interesting, right? And maybe help make secure Bitcoin layer twos, right? So maybe arc benefits or lightning benefits in transferring security from the main chain to a layer two, then it's good because more things can happen on layer two. So that's the thing. I mean, I think like personally that probably what the best way to, you know, 
figure out which of the variants is better is to, you know, people to get together at a kind of hackathon or people that do script opcode coding and try to implement, you know, one using the other, like see which one is a superset of the others and implement common things with them and see which ones, you know, work in practice or have limitations because it shouldn't be about, you know, championing one because of its history or because you, you know, you like it or what have you, right? It should be, well, we don't, none of us should really care which one philosophically is adopted. We should just want it to be the best, like, you know, lowest risk, uh, most flexible, easy to combine with other opcodes and do what's needed to do to be done so that we don't find like, oops, we forgot, you know, about this whole optionality. And now we need another up, another upcode to do half of what we thought it did, right? We don't want a surprise like that. So we got to, people should, you know, compare and contrast and try and implement them to figure out which ones are equivalent and which ones are more powerful. So yeah. if I had to summarize, it, it sounds like you're saying that the opcode, uh, trying to focus in on, on one or two or three opcode updates is a, what's the word I'm looking for? a safer path forward instead of drive chains or is that not what you're saying uh well i mean they're slightly orthogonal but it's you know there there are probably ways to implement drive chains or simulate drive chains like you could probably build a drive chain in a in a with a federation uh, i think rootstock has done something a little bit like that using hsms and a federation and merge mining and you know it might be that you could implement a drive chain using any of these covenant opcodes, for example, right? So it's uh, a drive chain is like a little bit simplified from a generalized sidechain. And so it, it doesn't take as much expressiveness or complexity to, to implement it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, sooner or later, it's hard to like exclude things to say, well, we want vaults, but we don't want, we don't want drive chains or, you know, we want this or not that. It's not really controllable, right? It's like a machine code level thing. If you have, a new CPU code for array indexing, well, it's, and you didn't have it before, it's going to make a lot of things easier to implement, but you can't target like what it does because it's too low level to, to have much steerability, right? So I just think sooner or later, we're going to be able to, you know, we're going to want vaults because they're good. We're going to want LN symmetry because it's good, like a more efficient variant of lightning with easier cold storage without needing to keep backing up state. These are all good things, right? And, you know, unless you like write a really specific CISC instruction to do that and nothing much else, it's going to be hard to prevent it being, and that would be a kind of wrong design, I would say, like from a risk design point of view. So we're probably going to end up with some expressibility that enables more use cases anyway. Now, this is this your way of passively, aggressively selling simplicity on the, the community? Well... So, I mean, I do think that simplicity... Let, let me define that for it? people listening real fast, Adam. So simplicity is this low-level typed combinator-based smart contracting language. It can literally fit on a t-shirt the size of this that Blockstream wrote. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is this is what you would like to be incorporated into the base layer, Adam, in order to allow uh, smart contracting on Bitcoin layer one is... Did I properly frame yeah. that? If I didn't, please define it and then uh, yeah, yeah, answer I mean, the close. other question. So, yeah. So I think that, I mean, I'm not really, I mean, some observers have said that like Bitcoin contributors that they would like to see APO to enable LN Synetry and then simplicity. Like they want to skip straight there. Uh, it depends, right? It depends on the time frame because simplicity 
you know, it's in development. It's been in development for a while. It's getting premature. We're getting pretty close to being able to put it onto liquid and live use. And I would say that simplicity is kind of the last soft fork. So it has enough much lower level self-extensibility, kind of like microcode for CPUs, that you don't need to keep designing and, you know, analyzing which opcodes to add expressibility here and there. You can do it in one shot and say, well, here's some microcode that allows us to implement new opcodes. And so in a way, it's less controversial, right? Because you're saying, well, do you want, do we want the extensibility or not? And if we do, we don't need to have design bake-offs for opcodes because people can figure that out like organically in the market. And simplicity, because of the like specification simplicity and like nine combinators and its compatibility with formal proofs and proof assistance, it can provide very high security assurances, you know, arguably higher than the current Bitcoin scripting system. And it's like a soft forkable, you know, script version. So it doesn't like displace anything. It's opt-in kind of thing. So I would say that probably simplicity is our best chance to get to you know, real ossification without feeling like we've accidentally cut off something that nobody foresaw right now or that needs to get fixed, you know, fixed in the future, like, I don't know, post-quantum signature schemes or something, right? Because all those kind of things can be implemented with simplicity, but I wouldn't necessarily throw it into the, you know, which way should we do covenants or should we do covenants at all? Because the time frames might be off, you know, it's a little further out. My gosh, there's a lot technically going on in this space. I think it's getting I think it's getting really hard for just common Bitcoin users to really kind of like they'll hear that whole conversation and they're going to be like, all right, I feel confused. I feel lost. Like, is is there an issue? Is there a problem? Can Bitcoin actually scale? I'm kind of curious, James or Adam, your thoughts uh, kind of to close this out for the listener that just heard all of that. Like, what's the key takeaway? And if you can't put people at ease, because I think the future is very bright. When I look at Bitcoin, this is my opinion, right? I'll give my opinion here first. And I'm kind of curious to hear you guys follow up. Bitcoin is solving clown world, right? Period. Like there's a major issue in the world. And it's that all this fiat money is not backed by anything. It's not being pegged to the wall and people aren't being held accountable. And they're just making up more and more digital units on a whim. And they're handing it out to the people that are closest to the money machine that that goes burr. To solve that, Bitcoin is this peg that's solving that, the store of value issue for large bond tranches. We're talking trillions of dollars worth of buying power that Bitcoin is trying to solve and and hold these, these actors responsible so that they can't just make up as many fictitious monetary units that they want on a whim. All this other stuff that we're talking about is on like immediately settling Bitcoin, making it scalable so somebody can go out there and spend a tenth of a penny is really kind of what we're talking about technically, but enabling a lot of this into the layer one where most of this store of value technology is taking place is enabling that so a person can conduct those transactions on layer one and not just layer two. So I think Bitcoin solves clown world, even if we don't do all of those things. I think there's a lot of engineers that would disagree with me, and that's fine. But I I also think that a lot of those engineers that would disagree with me really don't understand how the global macro debauchery, like what's causing it and what actually solves it. And I think what actually solves it is being able to 
actually send like, Adam, if you give me an invoice for $10 million and you say, I want it delivered in the next 30 minutes or else, you know that if I can't send that to you, it's because I don't have it, right? If I can't get that transaction into the mempool, you know, I don't have it and you know, I can send it. I don't even know where you're at in the world, but you could hold up a QR code on this video right now. And I could send you that Bitcoin if that arrangement was there, right? That's what gold can't do. And that's why gold has always failed throughout time is because you can't immediately settle and inventory the amount instantaneously, right? So as long as Bitcoin can do that, I think we solve clown world and a lot of this engineering talk and, and like the nuances of all this really specific stuff, you know, that use case is still there, which I think puts an enormous market cap on Bitcoin way higher than where we're at right now because it provides that service of store of value. Right. Let me hear y'all's opinion. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm interested in investing in asset classes and used to hold gold ETF, which according to my research was one of the ones that was physically backed. Got to pay attention to that. So I think it's actually correct that even if Bitcoin ossified today, you know, we live without the vaults, et cetera, right? And even if a large amount of it ended up in ETF, so it wasn't actually transacted on chain or it was in custodial wallets, it would still reach 90, 95% of its kind of monetary potential. It would mean that, you know, maybe it's hard for, if there are 100 million users today, it's hard for the next billion to have the same degree of censorship resistant, bearer control of their own money, right? Now, not everybody is going to do that. Some people are, you know, they want to call their broker and buy an ETF and that's what that's what they want and they don't, they don't feel comfortable with the key management. Some people are always going to be like that, right? So we can't fix that. But for the people that do want, you know, get interested and want to have control of their keys, I think that's, you know, that provides extra, extra assurance. And so I think some of the technology is about, well, you know, how could it scale? Like it, the, the basic technology doesn't scale. So if you don't want to make a compromise on the main chain and like degrade its performance for everybody, can you give these opt-in spaces? And it turns out you can, right? Lightning, you know, it has some security trade-offs. You have to be online. It's kind of a hot wallet. Maybe you don't want to store like savings amounts in it, but it's okay for retail payments. Okay, that took a bunch of transaction use out of the main chain. And like same for Liquid, right? Okay, people who are actively trading and moving Bitcoin between exchanges, the main chain doesn't really need to know about that, right? They're moving an IOU from one platform to another. And so, you know, Perhaps like the more decentralized sidechains have a place there. We'll, we'll see. Right. So it would be a kind of middle ground where, you know, it can be as if there was a big block, but they can opt into it. The interesting question is whether the incentives leak into the main chain anyway, even though it's an opt in thing. Right. And that's, that's a hard thing to categorically conclude on. James. Yeah, you know, I think there are a lot of complexities around this, but if you compare it to banking system and the payment systems that are out there already, there's a huge amount of complexity there. But it, it's a new language people are learning. So it's a, it's a more of a maturity that I feel is uh, needs to be adopted by the world to understand you know, the benefits, right? And, and making this easier to transact is, uh, I think, is going to help with the adoption, right? So when you start pulling things off the main chain, you could do it with speed, you could do it, uh, you make it simpler for people to use, I think we're going to see a lot more adoption. So that's my, my opinion on that. 
guys, I could talk to you all day and I've got <laughs> another two pages of questions here, but I've taken way more of your time than I told you I was going to take. And I appreciate your time immensely. This is a real pleasure and honor for me to be able to talk with you guys and uh, just really appreciate your insights. So uh, thanks for making time and coming on. Give people a handoff if they want to learn more about the basic, which we were talking about, uh, where they can find more information on that and uh, anything else that you guys want to highlight. Yeah, I think, I guess the best link is probably just blockstream.finance. It takes you to the landing page and the link for Stocker, which is the Luxembourg securitization provider that does the kind of regulatory setup and operates the securitization compartment on a regulatory basis. And I guess they're also kind of the share registration agent that you enroll with in order to uh, to buy and hold the uh, tokens. Okay, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Anything else that you want to highlight, James? Well, I, I think um, the basic fund almost sells itself. If you, if you look at the correlation of Bitcoin to ASIC prices historically, they, they're they pretty much, they're highly correlated. But if you look at 2023, there's a separation, which kind of suggests a huge price correction coming. Uh, yeah, we feel that the risk is, is minimal, even though there are always risks, it's minimal because of the low prices of ASICs. Really, not much further they can go other than up. So if you think about uh, the, the ASIC prices that is high, they were about $120 per terahash. Uh, Bitcoin was just below 70 right? Bitcoin is, you know, shy of half that now where the ASIC prices are about a tenth that. So, you know, when ASIC prices start recovering, we're going to see, you're going to see a lot better return than you would just see, that you would normally just see holding Bitcoin. So uh, I think it's very exciting and I'm hoping to have the opportunity to talk to people about that. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, we'll have a link to blockstream.com slash finance. We'll have some links to your uh, social media as well. And uh, thanks so much for making time. This was a blast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.